those. How can we ever be worthy to even speak his name to worship a holy God like we have? I've been sitting here just amazed that he accepts us, that he found a way, an enormous price that had to be paid, that his son had to die for us, unworthy sinners that we are, so that we would be clothed in his righteousness so that he could even look upon us, much less come before him now. So let's pray. Father, we just praise you that you love us, unworthy creatures that we are, sinners saved by grace, coming, Father, remembering, knowing every day how your grace is shed upon us, praising you that your mercy is new every morning, overwhelmed that you would give your Son for us. Father, how I pray that you'd help us today to see your word and to see it applied in our lives. I pray for your Holy Spirit who would work in and through what even I might say to be a blessing and encouragement and admonition to all of us here. Father, your word is powerful and we trust you. We pray that you just speak through us. We pray for those coming back from camp, that you might protect them, bless them in their service today, protect them as they travel such a long distance back home today, that they would uh, just see your grace and marvel at how you provide and you protect them. And we give you everything and pray that you'd use it in some way for your glory and honor, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So as Jim said, I I told him, I said, I want to talk about the omnipresence of God. He said, oh, that'll take me some time to figure out a hymn um, to talk about. But, you know, it's funny. We we have this class on attributes of God, but kind of unrelated to that, Jim talked about the sovereignty of God. And my my topic wasn't really going to be this, but, you know, it's just funny how the Holy Spirit works and suddenly this is what the topic is, talking about the omnipresence of God. I think it also just stems from some of the studying that we've been doing in the London Baptist Confession and thinking about who God is and how how diligent we need to be in studying the Word of God so that we might worship God in truth about who He is and not about who we think He is. I think it's oftentimes too easy to make assumptions and to worship someone, something that really is not our God. So I, I appreciate the study looking at, the, the in this class, the different aspects of the sovereignty of God, and it's been a real blessing to me. So, it, you know, I, I said every time I get up here, I'll talk about daily Bible reading and the importance of daily Bible reading. Only in this case to say, if you are on a daily Bible reading plan or just some Bible reading plan, you probably have experienced a situation where you're reading through and some passage really speaks to you, but you have to move on. 
And maybe you jot it down and then you don't get back to it. I've had multiple people in our group Bible reading plan. If you want to get involved in that, talk to Terry Johnson about it. Um, you know, emailing me, texting me and saying, I'm so frustrated. I want to spend time in this. I don't want to move forward, but if I don't move forward, then I'll, I'll never catch up, right? And, and the Bible bus just keeps moving and I, I, I warn people about, um, smelling exhaust too long. The longer you smell exhaust, meaning that you're behind, the more likely you're not going to catch up because you're just going to go to sleep and eventually die. So you need to kind of keep moving forward, right? So jot it down, move on, and when the Lord gives you some time, you go back and, and look at it. And um, this is here we go. This is the passage that recently sort of hit me, and I haven't got it out of my mind, so I thought I'd just... Share it with you. So Jeremiah 23, 23 to 24, if you want to move there, we'll be talking about the context in a little bit. Am I a God at hand, declares the Lord, and not a God far away? Can a man hide himself in secret places so that I cannot see him, declares the Lord? Do I not fill heaven and earth, declares the Lord? So this is one of those aspects that sort of got me the passages that got me really thinking about the different aspects of this and what this really means because, you know, the first verse was a little bit confusing and then the second verse made more sense and there are certain aspects of it that I thought would be interesting to look at. And so, we'll see. Does this work? Well, this may... It says I got lots of battery. There we go. So, Jeremiah 23, 24, three aspects I'd like to talk to you about today. One is a contextual aspect. Where does it fit within the passage? It's a little bit interesting um, how it works when we look at the full passage, and so therefore you might want to turn to Jeremiah 23, 24, which Jeremiah 23 is page 650 in your house Bible. Then there's what I'm calling a spatial relationship about where God says he is and also what he sees. And then, um, for lack of a better word, I'm just saying personal. There's a personal relationship that I propose that God is using these verses to speak to the Jews in sort of an unusual way. So as I was reading through this, it sort of caught my eye. And I started thinking about later why it caught my eye. And so there are these seven reasons I thought I'd share with you about why it caught my eyes. You know, seven is complete, so it must be accurate, right? It must be full and complete, right? Of course, there could be three more and there could be ten, and I missed it. So interesting, so the passage, as we look at the context, it completely stands alone. It has that ability because uh, verse 22 is an ending, It essentially has a close to that subject. And then 25 starts again. Similar topic, but it starts a whole different thought, right? Around that topic. And somewhere, for some reason, right in the middle, verses 23 and 24 are just sort of right there, which I find fascinating. So it apparently acts as a bridge. So there's these two sections, and it's a bridge between them, and we're going to look at that. Then also it's interesting because within two verses, it has three questions. And uh, within those two verses, we also find that the verses are similarly formatted. 
So from a format standpoint, they're very repetitious. Even though 24 helps to define 23, as I say here, it also says, declares the Lord three times. Why? Why must you? Why is it important to say, declares the Lord three times within two verses? Also, verse 23, if you just look up there, it says, Am I a God at hand, declares the Lord, and not a God far away? When I just read that by itself, it's like, how do I answer that? Some ways it kind of calls for a yes-no, but I don't want to really give a yes-no, right? I want to, I want to say more about it. And so we're going to look at that. We're also going to look at this concept of a chiasm or a chiasmus. If you've ever been in one of my adult Bible study classes, you know I love chiasms because they define a structure. So basically you take a series, uh, uh, multiple passages and the concepts that are presented at the beginning of the passage are then in reverse order at the end of the passage, leaving the very center passage the key verse. So when you're trying to understand what's going on, and sometimes, you know, there's 20, 30 verses, you're just sort of overwhelmed. If you find that it's a chiasm, then it all kind of comes to a key point. Nice thing about this is, if you don't deal with chiasms much, is that there's only two verses, so it's kind of easy to to figure this out. So as I was thinking through this and um, pondering about it, it was interesting about the bridge. You know, this concept about a bridge I'm not a road construction guy, but I do drive on roads a lot, right? And I know that the bridge is not the road. One reason I know that is I tend to bounce as I move from the road to the bridge. You know, as you have a pavement, then you move to concrete bridge, and then you move back to pavement, you sort of hit that. So I know that it's not, it's not there. It's not, it's not the, it's not the road. So these verses are not the scripture before, and they're not the scripture after. But somehow it relates them together like a road bringing these two together. Unlike a, I'm sorry, a bridge bringing them together. Unlike a bridge, it could go away, the roads would come together, and you wouldn't know anything about it. Which also made me remember, you know, particularly um, as a child, I would often see old bridges. You know, you drive along a highway and there's an old bridge over beside that's now been replaced and the road never goes to it and stuff like that this idea of these two verses could really stand alone. You could place them pretty much anywhere within Scripture and go, yeah, that's exactly true, and that could even apply to the Scripture. So I find it, uh, I, I found it fascinating, and I thought we would take a look at it. This idea of a chiasm, or a chiasmus, this is how we'd actually break it down. So the first concept, am I a God at hand, declares the Lord, and not a God far away, then relates to, do I not fill heaven and earth, declares the Lord? And in the center, you see the key point, can a man hide himself in secret places so that I cannot see him, declares the Lord. So we see that the key point really is a declaration that we don't, we cannot hide from God. We can also see through this, the structure, this similar structure that we have. Notice that there is this phrase, am I a God at hand? Then sort of an affirmative declaration declares the Lord. And then we see this sort of negated clause here and not a God far away. And so what we see in 24 is beginning phrase, can a man hide himself in secret places I cannot see him? Then the affirmative 
clause declares the Lord, and then this sort of negated phrase here, do I not fill heaven and earth, declares the Lord. And in Greek, from what I understand, not a Greek scholar, but the nots really are pointing back to the previous, the initial phrase, more than they are talking about themselves. So it's a sort of an interesting idea about why does this fit, how does this work. If you happen to look in Jeremiah 23, one of the things that you'll see is, starting in verse 9, it's talking about, it says lying prophets. So we see a heading, lying prophets. And what you'll see is a lot of prose, right? I'm sorry, a lot of verse. So they they formatted this as verse because that's kind of what it is. Then 16 and 17 is really a warning. I think I probably have something on that. 16 and 17 is really a warning to the people to not listen to the lying prophets. So there's this discussion about the lying prophets and what they're doing. There's a warning in 16 and 17 to not listen to the lying prophets. Then 18 through 22, it goes back, and there's a prophecy against the lying prophets. Then there's this bridge, am I God at hand, that suddenly sort of presents itself. And then 25 to 32 is another prophecy against the prophets. And 33 through 40 is another prophecy against the prophets. This is also interesting because, I'll tell you a secret. In daily Bible reading, sometimes I get a bit overwhelmed and I just read the words. And not a lot goes in my head. I know that doesn't happen to you, but it sometimes happens to me. Sometimes I back up and sometimes I just don't even back up. I just think, well, next year I'll catch it again and it'll make more sense. And actually that has become true. The more you read it, it's like, oh yeah, I remember this. You know, they become sort of old friends. So I thought, well, you know, these, these prophecies against the prophets, there has to be something more there, right? And I really haven't spent a lot of time mining it, but that's the wonderful thing. That's many, one of the many wonderful things about the Word of God. You cannot mine it too much, too deeply. You cannot find all of the, the truth that's there. But one of the things I did find in each one of these sections of prophecy against their idolatry and the lying prophets is that it begins with what God sees and hears of their actions. It then follows by his sorrow related to their idolatry and their falsehoods and stuff like that, and then ends with his statement of a coming judgment. So each one of these sections is highly repetitious as well, and I think we oftentimes find that. We oftentimes also find lots of three. So here's this three different parts within each one of these sections that are very repetitious, along with the three questions within the two verses, along with the three declares the Lord. You know, it's just one of those things that you got to stop and take a look at. You know, sometimes verses just kind of wave their hand and say, come look at me. And you just have to stop and come look. But then you have to read a little bit more so you don't get stuck behind the Bible bus and and have all the exhaust fumes and stuff like that. So it, I, I found it fascinating that it sort of makes the reader myself, the hearer, the Jews, sort of stop and think about why is it here? Because as you look at it, there's nothing that necessarily says that it's a particular ver- a special verse as you look at it within within your Bible. So that's kind of the context of, of where it is. So a section talking about lying prophets, 
Lying prophets, warning to the people, another prophecy against lying prophets, this sort of bridge statement, declaration of who God is, some important aspect of who God is, in, namely his omnipresence, and then another prophecy against lying prophets, and another prophecy against lying prophets, All each one of those prophecies all having a structure. So, then I thought, okay, that was fascinating. It's just kind of cool to begin to sort of break things out. But then I started thinking, so then I started looking at the words and thinking about the words. And if you look at these words, one of the things that you're going to see is that there are words that we generally think of having a position of place. So at hand, far away, secret places, heaven, and earth. These are all positions. Interestingly, the first two are relative to the the speaker, the reader, the hearer, right? So when I talk about God, God at hand, if God is at hand, you know, I instinctively think of at my hand. Um, in this case, we also can think of it speaking to the Jewish people as a group. Is God at hand for them or is God far away? Then at the uh, the last phrase, do I not feel heaven and earth, heaven and earth not being a relative position but being fixed positions? And then interestingly, right in the middle is secret places. I, I find the structure fascinating because one is relative, one is absolute fixed, and then the other one is, well, we'll talk about that. So when we think about God being at hand and why he might say that, You can begin to think about why this bridge statement is there, you know, when we're talking about lying prophets and and that sort of thing. So we're going to take a look at that. One thing that we do see also is in thinking about these different nouns is that the position of God at hand can easily be related to earth and God being far away can be easily represented by heaven. So I think that sort of makes sense. If he's at Hand, that's sort of like being on the earth. If he's far away, he's in heaven. And we see how that sort of ties together. Then there's that secret place. And the problem about the secret place is there was a construct of their own minds, right? Their own sinfulness that they must have thought, I think we can learn from this, they must have thought that there was a secret place, some place that they could hide from God and not, and God not see them, not, not to see what they're doing and their sinfulness. Now, related to this and the thought about the lying prophets is that um, they were doing things, not surprisingly, that they shouldn't. And we wouldn't really call them prophets because a prophet has to always be true and everything he, he says has to come to pass. But what I'd like to do instead of reading the whole 40 verses is just look in verse 18 going forward. For who among them has stood in the counsel of the Lord to see and to hear his word? Or who has paid attention to his word and listened? Behold, the storm of the Lord, wrath has gone forth, a whirling tempest. It will burst upon the head of the wicked. The anger of the Lord will not turn back until he has executed and accomplished the intents of his heart. In the latter days, you will understand it clearly. I did not, God speaking, I did not send the prophets, yet they ran. I did not speak to them, yet they prophesied. But if they had stood in my counsel, then they would have proclaimed my words to my people, and they would have turned them from their evil ways and from the evil of their deeds. 
in our passage, am I a God at hand, declares the Lord, and not God far away? Can a man hide himself in secret places so that I cannot see him, declares the Lord? Do I not fill heaven and earth, declares the Lord? I have heard what the prophets have said, who prophesy lies in my name, saying, I have dreamed, I have dreamed. How long will there be lies in the heart of the prophets who prophesy lies and who prophesy the deceit of their own heart, who think to make my people forget my name by their dreams that they tell one another, even as their fathers forgot my name for Baal. So we see a sort of a, a context of these lying prophets making things up, saying that God has said something, saying that God has given them a dream, God, God has given a burden, an oracle that they're going to uh, pronounce. God then uh, gives judgment, saying that judgment is coming upon them. Sadly, he also says in, I think, 22, but if they had stood in my counsel, then they would have proclaimed my words to my people, and they would have turned them from their evil way and from the evil of their deeds. That last part is a little frightening for people who stand up and pronounce the word of God, that there is some burden, some expectation to, to preach correctly. And I have to say, through the week, I have found myself continually praying, please, Lord, help me not to be a lying prophet, not to say something that is not glorifying to you. So easily we do that, and we, we um, can fall into that because we live within this world. So these lying prophets, and really the, the people who followed them, you know, they had, as, as we have said recently, domesticated their concept of God. And we're seeing this more as we study that if we're not careful, we domesticate God, making him palatable to us, right? Um, you, want, you want a God that you can control. You want a God that can provide for you but at the same time, you don't have responsibilities to him, right? We want somebody that makes us comfortable. We Obviously, we know. I think we can all see this. We see within the world how this happens. It's my truth. It's your truth. Sean talked about this today in class, and I thought, that is exactly right. And for those of us who go out into the world, or at least before the pandemic went out into the world, um, we... It's saturated by falsehoods. And we have to be very diligent to not accept them, to mortify them, to push, put them off, and to not bring them home to our families because there's just so much pervasive lies out there that if, if you don't like a just God, then your God is very loving and accepting. If hell frightens you, then there is no hell. I don't believe in hell. You know, somehow, you know, I listen to these people and they seem to think because what they believe, that's what reality is. And <laughs> that is not true, obviously. So there is a God. There is responsibility. There is a God who expects something from us and who is worthy of all worship. So they show this concept of almost what we call a localized God, sort of a... Uh, an idol, if you would, that they would put up on a shelf that really didn't have a lot of power, but somebody that they could look at and somebody they could pray to, but there's really no um, requirement from them. We also find within the Scripture, and we'll, we'll probably look at this, is that um, 
there'd become an idea with, that was common within the Hebrews that because the temple existed, because the temple was the dwelling place of God, because God dwelled above the mercy seat, no problem. He's always going to protect us. He's always going to provide for us. Yes, those northerners, they were taken, but they're not in Judah. We are the blessed. We, we exist within this city that is God's shining city on a hill. But we know that that's not the case. And what I'd like to propose is that God is preparing them in a variety of ways to be exiles from their land. So, Jeremiah 7, 1 through 4, the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord, stand in the gate of the Lord's house and proclaim there this word and say, hear the word of the Lord, all you men of Judah who enter these gates to worship the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, amend your ways and your deeds and I will let you dwell in this place. Do not trust in these deceptive words. This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. We read this so frequently that they're, um, it, the temple was all, almost like a talisman to them that they could look to, that they could rub, that because they were at the temple, that they would receive blessing from the Lord no matter the state of life in which they lived. They were com- comfortable with living that way. And one of the reasons why is going back to this idea that they were impacted by the neighboring countries, right? The neighbors in their idolatry, the Hebrews all too easily accepted, as they accepted the idolatry and they fell into sin, they began to think that Jehovah God was like these gods. Powerless, impotent, localized, sitting on a shelf, somebody that I can move around and cause to do whatever I want to do. And that wasn't the case. And so God is trying to call them, is, is calling them back, telling them that this is a falsehood. We see the verse I read before, I did not send the prophets, yet they ran. I did not speak to them, yet they prophesied. But if they had stood in my counsel, then they would have proclaimed my words to my people and they would have turned them from their evil ways and from their, the evil of their deeds. So there's this idea within a spatial reality that God is, is trying to, is pulling them back, speaking the truth to them to say, I'm a God that is not just at hand, but I'm a God far away. That I'm a God far away working on your behalf, all the way over in Chaldea, working with Babylonians, that Nebuchadnezzar is my servant. There is something that is going to happen. I am there. I am here. There is nothing hid from my eyes. I fill my creation. Now, one of the things that we also know about the concept of him filling his creation is also that God is neither constrained nor contained within his creation. So we always have to make sure, you know, sometimes, you know, we, we have this idea of filling the creation and stretching God out. God is not stretched out. God is, and God is always whole. God is one. God is not contained by his creation, but at the same time, he is in the creation and filling it There is no place hidden from his sight. There is no place in his creation where he does not already exist. There is no place in time that he doesn't already exist. And so, therefore, sometimes when I'm most fearful, I pray to remind myself that God is already there, and I don't have to worry. 
I'm here, and I keep thinking about, oh, there, in a couple days, i got a problem. God's already there because he's not constrained by time or by space, and so that I can trust that he is already there working for my good uh, and preparing things for me. So also thinking about, sort of related to the whole spatial aspect about God, we talked about being at hand and far away, talked about heaven and earth, talked about how you can't hide him because he does fill his creation and therefore he sees all and knows all and is all powerful. It's also interesting, these two words right in the center, can a man hide himself in secret places that I cannot see him? It's amazing the number of scriptures in the Bible that talk about man attempting to hide and God seeing. When we sin, when we prepare to sin, we attempt to move into a secret place or we create within our minds this idea that this is a secret place and it's all okay. But God says that there is a place, there's no place that he can't see that all is in front of him, before him, and all within his control. So you can sort of see how the bridge, even though the bridge stands alone in the context that we've looked at, you can see how it, it ties together that God is really saying, I, there's a judgment coming for, for you idolaters, both before and after, but he stands up and he, he says almost as if, um, clearly showing his justification in his ability is why he would bring this judgment upon people, he has this interesting bridge. Just to say, this is who I am. I am God. There is none else. I fill creation. It is mine. You're responsible to me. Jim read Psalm 10. In Psalm 10, 11, it says, he says in his heart, speaking of the wicked, God has forgotten. He has hidden his face. He will never see it. So frequently when we're heading in the wrong direction, we convince ourselves of that. We convince ourselves that he can't see, that he's not involved with us. But he is. And as we, I, as I actually talked about in the, Sunday school, in the Sunday school class today, you know how often when we do sin, that is when we should run back to God immediately, but that is when we want to hide from him the most. Somehow, I'll just wait. <laughs> Somehow, it's going to get better. Somehow he'll forget that I turned from him and I chased after something that really didn't bring me any value, any pleasure, like I thought it would. Same thing happens here. So lying prophets, leading the people astray, teaching them falsehoods about who God is, saying that God is going to protect them. We see within uh, Jeremiah in particular how many times Jeremiah said, Nebuchadnezzar is coming, open the gates, allow him in, the city will not be destroyed, you will be taken as a prize of war, meaning you will not be harmed, you will be cared for, and you will be taken back into Babylon. But they said, no, we have the temple, this is God's city, we're going to fight, God will be on our side. If we're not careful, we can be that way as well. We have to listen, we have to know what God is calling us to do and who God is. In this case, 
they believed a lie. In this case, the lying prophets taught the people something that was a lie. So then, besides sort of the context about where it is, this bridge that pulls these together, and this spatial aspect about how God is omnipresent, how God is at hand and far away, how nothing is hid from God, how God exists both holy in heaven and earth, not constrained by any of it. As I, as I prayed about this, there seemed to be what I'm calling a personal aspect to this. And this idea of this personal aspect is this concept of at hand and far away. So Brian Watson in a, in a previous Sunday school class was talking about how God being near to us can, can really also be um, linked to his blessing and how God being far away from us can also then be tied to his judgment as God says he moves away from a people as God says that he's bringing wrath that usually comes from afar onto people. But when God says that I am near, it's in love. It's in care and devotion. It's speaking to us. And for some reason, the Hebrews had gotten all this sort of messed up. They thought that far away was good and at hand could sort of could be bad and at hand is good and far away can be bad. None of us wants God to say that I am far from you. We want him to be very near to us. So as I was thinking about this, I sort of realized that you know, God was speaking to a people who, whether they believed or not, were soon to be going into exile. They wouldn't believe it at that point that their temple would be destroyed, that the city would be destroyed. But God is preparing for, for, for them a place. And he has said by his prophet, God has prepared a place for you in Babylon, in Chaldea. Go to it in peace because the land required 70 years to sit and rest because of the sin. We won't get into that. But the, the failure of the Jews to follow laws appropriate. And so, as, as I look at this, and I think about this idea of, these are kind of small, uh, too small, smaller than I thought. Um, thinking about at hand, you know, so one verse, 73.28 is one of my favorite verses. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all of his works. Or Psalm 16.11, you make known to me the path of life in your presence, there's fullness of joy at your right hand or pleasures forevermore. So we have this idea that when I am with God, there's blessing, there's comfort, there's peace. When I'm far away, an example, Psalm 138.6, For though the Lord is high, He regards the lowly, but the haughty He knows from afar. Isaiah 30.27, Behold, the name of the Lord comes from afar, burning with His anger and thick rising smoke. His lips are full of fury. And his tongue is like a devouring fire. Like I said, when we see God coming, it's from a distance. Because of his fury, he has pulled himself away. 
In Psalm 139, we know this well. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways even before a word is on my tongue. Behold, O Lord, you know it all together. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. For you form my inward parts, etc. We see the blessing of God when you accept His nearness, when you seek to live for Him. In our case, as Christians on this side of the cross, He dwells within you. You find this great peace and comfort. But for the Hebrews, this idea of being at hand was being in the temple, right? So the prophets would go to the temple and they would stand in front of the temple and they would prophesy. The people would go to the temple and that's where their sacrifices were. Everything was simple, right? And we know according to our law, there were, everything had to be done at the temple. They, at that point, didn't have other places for these kinds of sacrifices. Everything had to come there. So you can sort of see how they got themselves disoriented in what the truth was, that the place was not important. They would soon find that out because the place would be gone. Also, as I mentioned about the, the ver- two verses, our bridge verses, and why different seven reasons I find them interesting, is this concept of declares the Lord. And I, I, I have no answer for this. One, I, you know, I want to say that it says declares the Lord three times because so frequently these lying prophets were speaking lies and Jeremiah, God, wanted to make sure that they understood that this was from the Lord. But then also I started to think as I thought about this personal relationship and what he might also be telling these people pre- and post-exile is a comfort. It's a comfort to know that God has said this and I will abide by my promises because God is true and God is faithful, right? So it should bring comfort to hearers to know that God omnipresent, seeing all things, nothing hid from his sight, should be a comfort. It hasn't been a comfort because they've been relying upon their temple. They've been relying upon living in Jerusalem. They've been relying upon the physical aspects of that and the blessings. But God, I believe in these two little verses, really is beginning to move them, beginning to move their concept of the temple, the temple, the temple, beginning to move it to say, it doesn't really matter. Because I'm both at hand and I'm far away. I'm there in Babylon with people who have already been exiled. I am here. I am speaking to you. And over and over again through true prophets, I'm, I'm giving you what that truth really is. Another aspect of this, small as it is, these are the verses that we read earlier. You'll notice that, that there are these two phrases stood in the council stood in my counsel, stood in the counsel of the Lord. You know, and, and if you look at those, that sort of speaks a little bit against this idea of 
it doesn't really matter, location. Until you begin to think that maybe standing in the council of the Lord has nothing to do with the temple. It has nothing to do with standing in a physical presence, in a position of place. But it's really standing before the Lord with an open heart seeking what He has to say. And so I think over and over again we see that these verses are beginning to move people into this concept. That standing in the council of the Lord is not a physical position, even though historically they would stand in the temple. It's not um, that they have to be someplace in Israel, less land than it was, but they could stand in the council of the Lord regardless of where they were. And so for this reason, these reasons, sort of as I began to think about this, I started really pondering this aspect of so much of Scripture, when I, I read it, sort of try to accept it at, you know, as, as truth, right? But there's so much depth there. You know, I look at this and I see, the, I see the prophecy against the prophets and the judgment coming, but then I see verses like we have, and it's amazing when you begin to look at it, there's so much more there. There's an opportunity for God to be able to say, you have a misconception of who I am. You assume that I'm like these idols, but I'm not. When the temple is destroyed, as painful as that might be, never fear. I'm at hand. I'm actively working far away. And beginning to change their concept of how they worship God and where they might worship God. So, as we think about it, what will they do? So here this is before the before Jerusalem has been destroyed. Oh, template. That's a that's a typo. Before the temple will be destroyed, and they'll be exiled into a foreign country. I mean that's that's devastating, right? What will they do? If they understand who God is, if they read his word, if they even just study these two in this bridge passage then I think that trusting in God who is at hand but also sovereign over all the creation, seeing all from whom there are no secret places, requiring no temple in which to dwell or to worship, faithfully following Him regardless. And so the message really is for them this. Be faithful. Everything that you put your, your hope in, unfortunately, is going to be destroyed so that your hope gets placed in God, not in these physical talismans, this comfort that you have of this identity of Jerusalem, of the temple. I think that also the, the message for us is the same. So oftentimes we get so comfortable. You know, we live pleasant lives. We have food on our table and we live in comfortable homes for the most part. And, you know, everything is like really pretty good. And so you look at your life and you say, I'm being blessed. You know, God is for me. And then something happens. Illness, loss of job, no bank account, no place to live. And you say, God's against me. And so the question becomes, what are we going to place our hope in? Do we place our hope like these people initially in 
the physical aspects of life and the comforts that we have? Do we place our hope in God knowing that God is both near and God is also far away? God is not far away for our judgment, but God is far away preparing for us something that we don't see. And so oftentimes it's difficult. And um, I, I have this issue too, and I, I talk to people who have this issue is to hold on, to wait. Because in every situation that i found, once you're in that what was far away time and position, you see what God has done, and you give glory to God. Oh, to be faithful here. Oh, for these Jews to be faithful. So that when they read, am I a God at hand, declares the Lord, not a God far away? Can a man hide himself in secret places so that I cannot see him, declares the Lord? Do I not fill heaven and earth, declares the Lord? They can say amen. I faithfully believe that. I see how God is working in and through us. If these people had accepted what Jeremiah said and walked out of the gate, they would have seen the blessing of God, but their fear kept them from that, and many of them, most of them, then died in the city or died in the battle or killed by Nebuchadnezzar's army afterwards. But if we can remain faithful, trust God that in His omnipresence He is always there, ever living within us. I I find myself just amazed at times, need to be amazed all the time about this, that God, as a one true God, dwells within each of us. Not a part of God. All of God dwells within me. How easily we forget that. How easily we don't take advantage of of that in our prayer life. We don't take advantage of that in our Bible study. We walk around with God wholly within us, able to do more than we can ever imagine able to bless us and use us for His glory. And yet, oftentimes, I guess the Scripture has spoken to me, oftentimes I'm more like these people that I begin to accept what's in the world, what the world says about God, that God is, God's there for you whenever you need Him, but you know, you sort of live your own life, right? Do your own thing. He'll accept you because you're better than this other person. Uh, this other person, though, being Christ, I am not better, more holy than Christ, and Christ is the only one that he accepts. So, in closing, I pray that um, as we think about the omnipresence of God, that we think about our requirements before him, that he's not just there to be rubbed and ask, will you do the following for me? But it really means that no matter where I am, that there are requirements for my life. Because I've been wholly bought and paid for by Him through Christ's death on the cross. Hope that when we think about this more, we will be very cognizant when we're out in the world to not be influenced by the ideas of the world. This was a discussion in Sunday school class today, how easy that is and how we need to Fight against that, as I said. We need to continually be in the Word. We need to have the Word speak truth to us when we begin to speak lies to ourselves, which we all do. We must speak truth to ourselves 
and realize that God is ever present and there is no secret place and if there is no secret place then that means that my mind in which I can commit all kinds of sin is not secret from Him. He knows. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, how I do pray You would help us for I know just from myself that we are weak. Father, we have been bought with a very high price We have been called to glorify You in our body, in our spirit. How I pray that You'd help us within this community of believers to glorify and honor You. I pray as we go out as families that we would do exactly the same, that we wouldn't live a different life out there in the world than we present here I pray as individuals that we would not be conformed to this world, but that we would be transformed by the renewing of our mind, by the washing of the water of your word. I pray that we would learn as these, this Old Testament, what happened with these Hebrews is for our instruction, for our learning. We see how easily they moved out into the world and then brought it back into their lives. We know that that is easy for us as well. I pray that we would fight against that and how we would follow you and love you with all our hearts. How I pray that you would help us to be faithful, to be encouraging, exhorting each other unto love and good works, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.